0: Imagine if you will a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Hello. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode and background on the cast and crew. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's main topic. You can find more of anthology at anthologypod.com, and if you want to contact me, go to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. Also, if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for uh, people to find the show in iTunes' search results. On this week's episode of the podcast, I'll be discussing Mirror Image. It's the 21st episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on February tw- uh, February 26th. 1960 on CBS. And for this week's bonus review, inspired by Vera Miles' appearance in this week's Twilight Zone episode, I'll share my thoughts on Matakitas is Coming, an episode of the short-lived British anthology series Journey to the Unknown, in which Vera Miles stars. But first, I have a couple things I need to get through. One is, um, this is more anecdotal than anything, but this is my second time Recording this episode of the podcast, I spent an hour a couple days ago, uh, a couple nights ago, real, rather, um, as of this recording, recording this entire episode, only to find that the recording was damaged. So I'm re-recording it. So if it sounds a little weird or whatever, that's that's why. It's because I'm saying all of this again. Um, <laughs> uh, but I have. I've safeguarded myself against having those issues come up again, hopefully. Um and I have a new backup system, so I'm all I'm all set. Um anyway, so having said that, I also want to go over a listener email that I recently received. Of course, again, you can always email me at Matt at ObsessiveViewer dot com and share your thoughts on the podcast, the topics I talk about, you know, what have you. Anything you want. Um I love getting email from you guys. This email comes in from Guy, who writes, Hey Matt, just listened to the last flight. Great episode. I'm a big fan of the time travel element in this one. I also have to agree with you. The way they shot the planes was great. Overall, really enjoyed this one. Also, happy, happy 30th birthday. Heard on the podcast that you got the Twilight Zone DVDs. I've got my Twilight Zone DVDs on Christmas best gift I ever got. Really like the commentaries on the episodes. Also just listen to you on submitted for your approval. Never heard of the podcast, but really liked it. Definitely going to be listening from now on. Anyway, keep up the good work on the podcast. So thanks so much guy for writing in and thanks for checking out submitted for your approval. Um, of course you guys can hear me guest on episode 26 of that podcast where I talked about the twilight zone uh, episode execution with host Brandon Cruz had a lot of fun on that podcast. And I hope that I get asked to make another appearance sometime down the road. Um, like I said, really great podcast, great environment. And Brandon is a super genuine guy and super friendly. So I highly recommend checking out that podcast and, uh, and you know, subscribing to his show as well as as well as this one, obviously. <laughs> also, I want to throw out a quick question to everyone listening. Um, inspired by Guy's email, I'm curious: what is the best Twilight Zone or other anthology show, for that matter, um, related gift that you've received or given? Um, of course, email your answer to me at matt at obsessiveviewer dot com, or you can just uh, post on the Facebook page or on Twitter, um, facebook dot com slash anthologypod, and uh, on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. It's not really obviously. I mean, we're in the middle of the middle of July at this point, so it's a little it's a little weird as of this recording for me to ask this question because it's more of a Christmassy kind of thing, I would think, but it's still something of interest. I would like to hear. Responses and uh, also when I was at Indie PopCon um, with my co-host from The Obsessive Viewer um, last month, I I saw on one of the in one of the vendor booths they had um, collectible figures for um, Twilight Zone, and I I was so tempted to just buy them because now I have a cubicle at my new job and I you know I like to decorate it so um, but I. (laughs) none of the none of the figures or um toys or what what have you none of them were from episodes that I'd seen so far, so I felt like it would be a little disingenuous if i got it would feel disingenuous to me if I would have bought an eye of the beholder um figure or whatever um having not seen the episode so I held back on that maybe eventually i'll I'll start getting the different toys and everything um But yeah, so anyway, so of course send those emails to me, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys say. Um, So having said all that, let's go ahead and dig into this week's review of The Twilight Zone. Um, As I said earlier, the episode is called Mirror Image. It aired on February 26, 1960. And as always, I'll go ahead and read a plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Sikri. Of course, this summary and the review itself will be completely spoiler-heavy, so make sure you watch the episode on Netflix, Hulu, uh, Amazon Prime, or if you're fortunate like me and Guy, um, watch it on DVD, and then come back and listen to the review. Millicent suspects the bus station is run by lunatics. Snappishly, the ticket taker tells her that she's repeatedly asked when the bus will arrive, adding that her suitcase has already been checked. In the washroom, the attendant claims she, is, she was there only a moment before, yet she's done none of these things. She realizes that it is not their sanity which is in question when, in the washroom mirror, she spies a duplicate of herself sitting in the waiting room. Rushing out, she finds the room empty. A short time later... Millicent elicits the sympathy of Paul Grinstead, an amiable businessman also waiting for the bus. When it arrives, the two of them start to get on, but Millicent flees back into the station when she sees that the other her has already boarded. Concerned, Paul misses the bus to remain with the distraught Millicent, who says that she now knows what is occurring. A mirror image of her from a parallel world has somehow slipped into this world and must take her place to survive. Certainly, she, Certain she's mentally ill... Paul summons the police who take Millicent away. But a few minutes later, he has reason to regret his decision. Chasing an elusive figure he believes has stolen his case, he sees that the man's mockingly grinning face is his own. Okay, so before I get to my thoughts as a first-time viewer of this episode of The Twilight Zone, here's here's a talent rundown for the cast and crew on the, on the episode. Um... Let's see. So first up is Vera Miles as Millicent Barnes. This was her only Twilight Zone episode. However, she did appear in other science fiction anthology television shows of the time. Um, She appeared in one episode of Science Fiction Theater. That was 1955's No Food for Thought. And she appeared in an episode of The Outer Limits in 1964. The episode was The Forms of Things Unknown. And, of course, as I'm going to talk about later in this episode, she appeared in one episode of Journey to the Unknown in 1968, uh, Madakidus is Coming. So she also appeared in an episode of Playhouse 90 that was written by Rod Serling, and it was called Panic Button. And this this episode of Playhouse 90 and this episode of The Twilight Zone were the only two instances where Rod Serling and Vera Miles worked together. So... I really, really wanted to review it in this episode, but I could not find it anywhere. Like, I'm afraid that... I feel like I'm afraid... Well, I'm afraid that a lot of the Playhouse 90, um, broadcasts are are lost. Um, that's my impression that I get from internet sleuthing and whatnot, which is a real shame because I would have loved to see it and I would love to see all of Rod Serling's Playhouse 90s, um... If you guys know anywhere that I could find it, um, please let me know, because I would be very interested in seeing it um, just as I'm going through the Twilight Zone and growing more and more fond of the work of Rod Serling. I would love to be able to go back and watch um, more of his work. Aside from that, um, Vera Miles is most well-known for playing Lila Crane in Psycho. Um, And she also worked with Hitchcock and other other things she appeared in the wrong man and she also appeared in some of Hitchcock's TV work she was actually this is kind of interesting she was originally cast in Vertigo as well but had to back out when she got pregnant Um, she's also known for her work with John Ford she appeared in the searchers and the man who shot Liberty Valance and as of 1995 she's retired from acting next up in the cast for this episode is Martin Milner he played Paul Green uh, Grinstead. Uh, this is his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did appear in one episode of Science Fiction Theater in 1956. Um, the episode was titled Three Minute Mile. And so he's he's very well known for his role in Adam-12, which crossed over into episodes of Dragnet, The DA, and Emergency. Um, and I mean, it was just a, a big hit basically. Um, And he did provide in the DVD that I have, at least the fifth dimension um, complete series, limited edition box set. He provided a commentary track for this episode and you know, it was kind of interesting. Um, He spent the majority of the commentary track talking a lot about his, his work, his career and notably his, his role in the, in the show route 66, which I'm totally fine with that. That's re- it's that's totally fine. It's really interesting to get that perspective um, from him about his career, his his life, his history and everything. Um, and it's it's totally fine. It's it's totally fine. But I was still really hoping for more about the Twilight Zone and his experience record uh, filming this episode and how he came about it and everything. Um, he did mention that everyone at the time wanted to work with Serling and he, he mentioned how much people wanted to work on the twilight zone. And he also had very nice things to say about Vera miles. So all that was interesting, but other than that, twilight zone information in the commentary was pretty sparse. But, um, what I found, and this is more anecdotal, I guess, um, What I found kind of interesting about the commentary was that there are are two instances in the commentary track where he references a a radio show that he did. Um, At the time of the recording of the commentary track, he had been doing the radio show for 12 years, and he actually – said the URL for the website in the commentary a couple times just kind of self promotion um, the the website is hookup1090.com it's a it was a it's a fishing radio show and something about that I found endearing um, I can't blame him for Um, doing, going the whole self-promotion route in the, in the thing, um, in the commentary. I just, I think, I think I was just charmed that he had something that he was so passionate about and it resonated with me just that, um, because I have podcasts and that's kind of my thing. Um, so I think that definitely excuses, um, um, his passion for it definitely excuses the occasional shameless plug in the commentary track. By the way, stay tuned after my Twilight Zone review this week for a peek at my other podcast, The Obsessive Viewer. Um anyway, so I actually went to the site at hookup1090.com and I listened to about 30 minutes of this 2-hour long uh tribute to Martin Milner that they had back in September because he had passed away. He passed away in September, 2015. And I don't know. It was really nice to hear people speak about their friend and this shared passion that they had. Um, even if it isn't in my wheelhouse, it was just nice to hear. And it was kind of eerie because I had paused the commentary track midway through to Google this website and and find this thing. So I'm, I'm listening to him, listening to him discuss this episode, and then I pause it midway through, and I listen to his friends memorializing him after he after he passed away. It was just kind of surreal. Um, but final final thing about Mart, uh, Martin Milner is that he he passed away in September 2015, as I said. And uh, according to that episode, a lot of LAPD police attended his funeral, and so there's an anecdote in in their tribute to him that uh, when his friends asked the police, if they all came there together, the police all just said, no, they were all there individually because, um, his work in the show Adam 12 is what made them become police officers. And, um, just hearing that was really nice. It was, it was really, it was really sweet to hear that, um, that he affected so many lives. And it particularly resonated with me because I'm recording this July, um, 2016. And back in February, I lost my dad. Um, and he was a retired police officer and just, it kind of made me remember that the, a lot of, a lot of, uh, officers came to his memorial and it was, it was really touching. And it, it, I'm sure that Martin Milner's family appreciated that. Um, yeah. So, um, so that was nice. And, uh, yeah. So next up in the cast is Joe Hamilton as the ticket agent um doesn't have a name in the show it's just ticket agent but um this was his only episode of the twilight zone that he was in um he ended up passing away in 1965 but he did appear in one episode of science fiction theater um the 1956 episode the man who didn't know and he was best known for his 11 episodes that he appeared in of the andy griffith show so writer for this episode is rod serling and Serling got the idea when he was at an airport one day and he saw a man from behind that was his exact height and wearing the same clothes that he was. And he kind of started wondering if he would find that the man was his exact double when he turned around. And I guess that kind of sparked this um, piece of imagination in his in his mind that eventually became this episode. Um, turns out that when the man turned around, Serling said that uh, when Serling said that he noticed that he was 10 years younger than him and, quote, more handsome. I thought that was a pretty funny anecdote. Director for this episode is John Bram. This is his fourth Twilight Zone episode. He previously directed The Four of Us Are Dying, more re- most recently, in, in the chronology. And next up is A Nice Place to Visit, which I will uh, be reviewing here in a couple months okay um having said all that let's get to my review of mirror image um, of course as is always the case with this podcast this is my these are my feelings as a first-time viewer of the show so bear that in mind um, so okay I'll just start off by saying that right off the bat I'll admit I'm definitely a fan of these tested sanity stories um, where is everybody comes to mind as another example I think it's just a strong platform to build an episode around having a character who's questioning, questioning their sanity and like their, their predicament in the twilight zone is causing them to question their reality. And as opposed to them being transported into this otherworldly scenario, it's, it's them being grounded in, in the scenario and questioning their sanity. Um, I love that concept and I love, I, I, I'm a fan of that um that premise basically so when Serling said in the opening narration um when he hinted that this was that type of story i was really pumped um right off the bat i was really into it and then follow that up with or not follow that up but back that up with the very first shot that we see of the sky with the rain and the thunder effects Um, and then that opening shot of just the lightning flashing, I thought that like as brief as that was, I thought it was really impressive and it really was a good ambiance to really make me eager for this episode to be a particularly creepy episode. And then in the, in the opening moments when, um, we see the curmudgeonly, uh, ticket agent, (laughs) Uh, Joe Hamilton was such a treat in the episode throughout it, and I just loved his irritation in this opening scene, and it made me really invested in the episode. So, so after the setup, after everything is, you know, set up well, I was, I found myself being very, very curious. Um, about what what this could possibly what this story could possibly lead to like what was the what was going on? I was very much invested and my first theory was actually that she was trapped in some time loop because it always it seemed like she was always a couple minutes behind her doppelganger. So I was thinking maybe half the episode would be her um, encountering the strangeness and then the other episode would be her causing the strangeness. Um, basically, I was hoping that the episode would be similar to the movie. Time crimes in that respect, which is a fantastic time travel movie um, I think it's a Spanish movie um, unfortunately, I was wrong, but i'm like like last week with elegy like i i had I, I went into this episode knowing that last week I basically let my want for the theory that I had early or about halfway through that episode. I let that kind of alter my perception of the episode going forward so I didn't watch mirror image and like as soon as I thought of that theory I didn't I didn't I, I pushed it away I thought it would be kind of cool I consciously made the effort not to let it uh, cloud the rest of the um, story for me and even though as the as the episode progresses we find out that it's this weird parallel universe that's pushing, pushing characters out of their own existence and replacing them. Um, even though I like that idea, like the idea of people infiltrating our world from parallel universe, uh, universes, I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. And I think it's incredibly interesting, but overall I just had so many problems with how the plot was delivered to us in this episode. Um, after about twenty minutes of this really confusing and intriguing Twilight Zone shenanigans that the character was going through, we suddenly get the main character waking up and remembering something that she read. And she's basically this is after she sees after she sees herself on the bus, she tells Paul, just point blank, like, oh hey, I read something I read something in a magazine or something about how, you know, parallel universes and she spells out the entire plot, um, to us. And my problem with it is that that's the only, that's, that's all we get of, of the motivations of these doppelgangers and the, and the mysticism surrounding them. Like the, like that's the only explanation that we have at all. It's through dialogue and, I don't know. I, I I first of all, I think the episode introduced it too late. Um it's like I said it's about 20 episodes in, tw- uh, I'm sorry, 20 minutes into the episode and from there it goes with mysticism rather than developing it more and that was just a big letdown for me. But I'm getting ahead of myself here so I'll I'll backtrack a little bit and talk about Millicent seeing herself in the waiting area in the, in the reflection of the washroom mirror. That is far and away my favorite point of the episode. That's, that's definitely the high point of the episode. It's um, the way that it's framed. um, It's almost as if it's from the doorway. It's shot from the doorway. We see her in the reflection and then we see the alternate her also in the same frame in the, in the mirror. It was just, it was really well, well constructed and, and it, played well. It looked convincing, which is a lot more than I can say about the ending of the episode, but I'll get to that. So I just, I I loved that. I thought that that was really interesting and a good, a good, um, high point of the episode. And so going forward from there, we also see Millicent seeing herself on the bus and she panics and, runs back into the bus depot. And I thought that that was, it's right before a commercial break. And I thought that was a really strong way to bring us into the second half of the episode. Um, and also the added mystery surrounding the alternate Millicent that's on the bus. Um, the added mystery of her smiling was a very nice touch, but then, but then they kind of squander that. Um, because after immediately after that, we get, the entire explanation spelled out to us of what is going on and and that's just that just took, didn't necessarily take me out of the episode it just took away my um, intrigue or my interest rather so i don't know so so to be honest like my my the first time i saw this cuz as i do with all these episodes i i rewatch them a few times and take notes and figure out what i'm going to say then I stumble through it really haphazardly. Um, (laughs) So to be honest, the first time I saw it, Millicent spilling out the plot just really soured the rest of the viewing for me. And like that, that put such a cloud over the rest of the episode. But upon my second and third viewings, and this will be when I transition to talking about Paul as a character, but on my second and third viewings, I shifted my attention to that character because I knew going into it that I wasn't going to get much out of Mill- Millicent. So, I paid more attention to Paul's arc and I really liked how that character was handled in this episode. Um of course, he's going to remain rational and try to get this woman help because he doesn't know he doesn't know her. He's just met her. And in that case, he may actually be the focal character of the entire episode. Um, he's introduced as a calming presence for Millicent, and then he remarks that there has to be a rational explanation. And he keeps that rational viewpoint up until the end when his bag goes missing. And I don't know. I just think shifting my attention from Millicent to Paul really enhanced the episode for me. And really, I got more out of the episode that way than I did from following Millicent and um, following her journey throughout the episode, which is a shame in and of itself. And I'll get to why here in a moment. But basically, it's because we've only had a few female-driven episodes so far. And I understand it's the 60s. It's the early 60s. So times were different. But I don't know. It, I don't know. My concerns about the, the gender of the main character, um, it leads to a big issue that I had with this episode. So this is the third episode that we've had where a woman is the central protagonist, um, as far as I can remember. Um, yeah. And yet the story shares a lot of the same beats as the hitchhiker, And you can even draw some more broad comparisons to The 16mm Shrine. So, So when it comes to The Hitchhiker, so both this episode, Mirror Image, and The Hitchhiker, they both focus on a female character who's slowly losing her grip on her sanity, only to eventually confide in a strange man she meets who in turn, is convinced that she is, in fact, crazy. Um, in The Hitchhiker, Nan Adams had the soldier that she picked up outside of the gas station. Um, and in, here in Mirror Image, Millicent Barnes has Paul, who she just meets in the bus depot. And this is a this is also a small comparison to draw, but both episodes feature voiceover narration by their protagonist. I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel there. But it's just... I don't know. It and granted, neither of those those episodes, like the female character losing her sanity and then confiding in a stranger that she meets who is a man who doesn't believe her or thinks she's crazy, like that's that's not necessarily the entire episode for each, but it's a big chunk. And it, it, it follows similar beats and that kind of I I kept coming back to that as mirror image progressed, and I just thought that it felt a little derivative of the hitchhiker, I guess. Or derivative might be too strong a word. It just felt distracting to me. And so, like I said, you could also draw some very vague similarities to the 16mm shrine. Um, in that episode, Ida Lupino uh, struggles to keep her sanity, while Martin Balsam... Tries to protect her, basically. Um, and I admit that one is a big stretch. And there's a lot more to that episode as well. But my point is that there seems to be a pattern in these three episodes that I'm picking up at least. And maybe I'm drawing conclusions. Maybe I'm looking too deep into it or looking looking into something that isn't there. But I just I can only hope that the next female-driven episode, whenever we get it, I'm, I hope that that kind of breaks breaks this formula and I don't find myself comparing him comparing it to past episodes with female protagonists. And you know, while I'm being kind of nitpicky here, arguably so, um upon further viewing of this episode, it's like on repeat viewings, this episode is a bit confusing. Um and and this might I don't know, this might seem a little more nitpicky than anything else, but throughout the episode it's it's just it's hard to it's hard to tell where the other Millicent is as the episode is unfolding and what she's doing and why so the bus depot it's not a big space, and the episode takes place almost entirely in the same location basically you have the bus depot and the washroom and outside it's raining it's it's storming outside, so you have this you have this open space basically where most of the episode is taking place so my question is where is millicent's doppelganger where's this counterpart the entire time because when she talks to the ticket agent he says that she's been up 30 i think 30 minutes 30 minutes ago and then in the washroom the attendant says that she's been there a couple minutes granted i understand this is a tv show we don't see the full set the, it's the full set isn't supposed to be the set that we see isn't supposed to encompass the entire building, obviously. And I'm I'm grasping at straws here, but I don't know. It it just felt a little distracting to me that there's this kind of weird game of cat and mouse or of this um this thing about the the counterpart from another universe kind of toying with Millicent, yet she's just roaming freely around this place and no one seems to notice her or anything. And, and Millicent doesn't notice her. It's just, it's just kind of strange to me. It's kind of bizarre. And as far as why she's doing what she's doing, I guess, given that she's, is intentionally messing with Millicent, it's acceptable that her whereabouts and and whenabouts in the episode aren't accounted for. But that also goes back to my bigger complaint about the mysticism surrounding the uh, doppelganger plot line and the counterparts, basically, and the way that the plot is just spelled out to us in dialogue. Um, basically, we we only hear about these, these alternate people through dialogue, and we see them at the end. We see one of them at the end, but it doesn't give any answers or give any insight into what they're doing or why. So we know from what Millicent says in dialogue that these are people from another Parallel universe, and that in that they've infiltrated this universe somehow, and their whole goal is to replace their exact duplicates so that they can survive. So, I don't know what the motivation of these counterparts is. I don't know. So, so she is basically toying with the Millicent that we're watching throughout the episode. She, my interpretation of it is that she's intentionally messing with her to have her question her sanity so that she gets, um, sent away so that she can take over for her. Or maybe it's just that she wants her to miss the bus so that she can get on the bus. I have no idea because we don't get enough, um, clarification on what they're doing and why. Um, and I just feel like, uh, I don't know. I don't have a solution to this problem, by the way. Um, I, I'm, I just don't know how it could have been fixed. I don't know how they could have explained what they were doing. I, I don't know how it could have been fixed, but, but at the end of the day, by the end of the episode, I was just confused about the doppelgangers and I ended up feeling like the main crux of the story just wasn't developed well enough to be interesting to me. And it doesn't, it also, well, okay. So this, yeah. Okay. Um, I'll go ahead and say it. And when, and it doesn't help that when Paul is introduced, Millicent essentially recaps the first 10 minutes of the episode to him. I wrote that in my notes and then I talked about it in my initial recording that was damaged. And then I realized halfway through that that's probably because it's television, 1960s television, and I'm viewing it in a world where we have DVDs and we have, um, DVR and we have, you know, stuff that I can rewind. So I'm not viewing it as someone in the sixties would, in which they're coming back from a commercial break. That's bringing them up back up to speed. So, um, I'll forgive that point, please. Um, it was just still in my notes, but anyway, um, (laughs) So, moving forward, there's a scene, and I'm kind of all over the place because I keep getting distracted about the um, doppelgangers and the bigger points of the entire episode. I apologize. But when the scene when Millicent is unloading all of her problems onto Paul after that commercial break, and then she panics when her bag isn't where she thought it was, Um, like she looks over next to her and she says, my bag, and then she panics she panics because the bag isn't there. And then Paul kind of like looks at her and she's, he's like, it's right over there. And it's the camera pans over just, just slightly to where it's right there. And I have to admit every time I watched this scene, cause I've watched it several times or I've watched it about four times at this point, um, including times in the background and with the commentary playing, I laughed every time because, I don't know. Something about the camera panning to show the bag right next to her was just really goofy. And I think it was a misstep in the episode. Um, I get it. I get that they wanted us to see how hysterical she was, but it just came across as really hokey to me and it didn't land at all. And I can't, I can't imagine that it would have landed in 1960, um, as an effective, um, faux surprise, I guess, or, or what have you? I just thought it was kind of just kind of cheesy and a little hokey, and I think it could have it could have been handled better. So, as I said, I've I've watched this episode a few times, and upon repeat viewings, I kind of found myself really wishing that that if the episode wasn't going to give us more details about the doppelgangers, which I knew it wasn't, um, if that was the case, I wish that it would have given us. Something more engaging, like in addition to that, and there 's a scene where, after Paul has Millicent sent away by the police, he goes up and he talks to the ticket agent and or no no i i 'm sorry it 's before she 's sent away it 's when he talks about calling his friend um, the ticket agent asks who who he 's going to call, and Paul says that he he's, 's he's going to call the police to get her help something about the way that the dialogue is constructed in this scene and the way that he delivers it, um, calling her a poor kid. I was, I, I found myself really hoping or wishing that, um, that there was something about the character that he was in on it. Maybe he was messing with her or he's part of some experiment that he's running on her. Um, I thought it would have been is- interesting if he was in on it and, I don't know that that would be a completely different episode, um, entirely, but I don't know. It just, it speaks volumes that as the episode stands now, it fell flat to me and I found myself really wishing that there was more to it. And it, I I was grasping at straws to, um, see if maybe there was something in Paul's character that they could have ran with instead of the counterparts. So, um, a couple quick things about the technical aspects of it, there's this, I guess, yeah, um, <laughs> there's this weird, it's before, before that scene with the ticket agent, um, there's a weird catatonic shot of Millicent's face and it's when she's explaining things and it's when, uh, Paul says that he's going to call his friend about getting a ride. And so the camera, sh- uh, uh, the episode cuts to, twice in the scene, cuts to a shot of Millicent with her mouth agape, just sitting completely catatonic, not responsive to anything Paul is saying. And I kind of feel like that was, that was kind of a meant to be a writing shortcut. Um, And what I mean by that is that this is at a scene where Paul is suggesting an alternative to taking the bus or waiting for the bus and to get to their destination. And it just cuts to Millicent with this very weird weird facial expression not being able to respond and I feel like that's that's to cut out time that they would have had arguing over that or having more dialogue about that I don't know if maybe the script was longer and they needed to cut something and they added in those shots of Millicent's face so that so that it could expedite the episode but I don't know it just it didn't work on me I thought it was goofy a, a goofy visual effect um, yeah. And I, I don't know, I don't know, actually know anything about the background of the episode filming wise. So I don't know if that's the case or not. That's just conjecture on my part. Um, so as I've been kind of ripping this apart a little bit here, I will say that one of probably my second favorite shot or scene of the entire episode is when Paul's bag disappears. Toward the end of the episode, it's after Millicent's taken away, and he's waiting for the bus, and he goes, he sets his bag down next to the bench, and then he walks over. This is all one continuous shot. He walks over to the water fountain, leans over, uh, or bends over, and drinks from the water fountain, and then when he stands, stands back up, the bag is gone. I thought that was really effective, and that was, really, that was a really well-done um, shot but it's followed up with Paul chasing his doppelganger down the street and that ends the episode and i really thought it was just silly and awkward um when we see first of all just the the way that it's composed is it doesn't it looks goofy it looks out of place like i don't know and i understand the technical aspect of it is is tough to do especially at that time but I don't know, it just it just felt it hasn't aged well. And so the eerie smile on um um Paul's counterpart's face as he's running in the foreground um that just left me confused and disengaged and more more perturbed with the plot of the episode than I was before. Um and I think part of that might be due to the kind of baby face look of Martin Milner in the, in the episode at the time. And I mean, that's not a fault. I mean, you can't really fix that or anything. It's just, he has this kind of baby face to him. And so that gave this smile that he has this grin so much more of a, a childlike quality. And that just didn't feel earned throughout the rest of the episode. Um, it's contrasted by this little smile that, the alternate Millicent gives on the bus, it kind of seems more, that seems more like a, like, oh, I won kind of smile when this one seems like, oh, come and chase me. It's going to be fun. And I don't know. I just, I get the sense, judging from the dialogue that we got about these, about these counterparts, which is all the information we have. Again, it's all the information that we have about them. I wouldn't think that these beings, these alternate people are playful. I would think that they're, judging from the dialogue, they're trying to survive. They're trying to make their existence, they're trying to replace our characters in this universe. Otherwise, they won't survive. And to have this grin on the character just seems more like a playful, playful thing. And it just doesn't make sense within the con, constructs, uh, construct of the episode. Maybe I'm missing something entirely and I encourage you guys to email me and let me know because I don't know. I'll get to that in a second, but I, this just didn't, didn't do it for me. Um, I will say in that scene though with Paul chasing himself, um, the eerie and fantastical music was really fun and super memorable. And I really liked that aspect of it. The entire score for the entire episode overall was really good. And it comes a couple of weeks after seeing, um, the purple Testament where I thought that the score in that episode was overbearing. Um, it was nice to see a more subdued score in this episode. So usually I talk about the cultural subtext or the theme or what I think that they're trying to say in this episode, and I was kind of uh, pleasantly surprised to see mental illness play such a uh, such a central role in in this episode. Um, it's been hinted at and touched on in episodes past. Um, in particular, my my read on uh, in when the sky was opened in episode six of the podcast that immediately comes to mind. Because um, that could be construed as an allegory of, or interpreted as an allegory of uh, mental illness and and people not believing you. Same can kind of be said about the the purple testament, but I don't think I really touched on that in my um, in my in my review of it um, a couple weeks ago. But anyway, this episode is interesting to me in that it's a case where we have the grappling sanity or, or a character grappling with with their their reality being um taken from them basically in in this mental illness really and this episode is interesting because in it someone actually feels that it's right to get help for the character and that i don't know it was it was it was interesting like paul has her sent away by the police it's obviously it's played up as you know a bad idea because, um, this doppelganger is going to replace her and, um, and she's right from our perspective. Um, but I'm completely okay with it. Um, and maybe part of that is just that I felt like the actual story was underdeveloped, but I'm completely okay with Paul having her son away because, it fits the rational nature of that character. And I thought that there was a a refreshing change of pace in the series in that a character is confronted with another character who is losing their sanity and losing their sense of reality. And instead of, I don't know, instead of playing along with them or, or not believing them or completely be berating them, this character took action and went through with actually getting them help instead of arguing with the character or appeasing the character. I thought that, that was a really good touch to this episode um, and a good change of pace, I guess. I don't know, but I thought that that was good. I liked that they had Paul try to get her help. It it showed that he was a well-meaning character um, even though it kind of spelled her doom. <laughs> um, so as far as trivia, the only piece of trivia I could find was that the cities mentioned in this episode, um, there's Cortland, Syracuse, Tully, and Binghamton. Um, they are all along highway 11 in central upstate New York. And the use of them is an homage, um, by Serling to his childhood. Um, he was born in Syracuse, lived in Binghamton. And, uh, he actually, while he was, uh, when he lived in Hollywood during like when he was a massive success. Um, he actually kept a home in Bing- Binghamton. So it was a nice, a nice nod to his childhood by Sterling. And yeah, that's the only piece of trivia I could find. Um, so my closing thoughts on this episode of the twilight zone, I, it's, it's kind of a, kind of a frustrating episode for me. Um, and I noticed that the, the episode has an 8.0 user rating on IMDb. So I don't know. Maybe maybe this episode just wasn't for me. Or maybe there's something that I missed that's really critical to enjoying this episode. And maybe that's preventing me from appreciating it. So if that's the case, I mean, please correct me. Email me, matt at been I've already had my perspective on um, Perchance to Dream shifted quite a bit and I gained a new appreciation for that. So if you guys can, um, if you guys loved this episode, email and let me know why, and I'll I'll give it another shot because, um, like I said, I really like the concept. I really like the concept of alternate realities and people from alternate realities coming into our reality, but I just felt like it was underdeveloped in this episode. So, yeah, I don't know, and I, and I love when it... I, I love when characters are confronted with their perception of reality shifting and losing their sanity. I love that as a plot device, and I think it can lead to really interesting characterizations and some really thought-provoking stories can be born from it. But Mirror Image kind of forsakes that characterization in my eyes in favor of a metaphysical idea that in its own right is really entertaining and really interesting and really thought-provoking in in itself – but the main problem is that it was spelled out to us rather than developed organically, um, and it's spelled out to us solely through dialogue, and that just made me disconnect from the story, and it made Mirror Image ultimately a letdown for me. So, like I said, um, email me your thoughts at matt at obsessiveviewer dot com, and we'll uh, we'll have a dialogue about this. <laughs> so. Uh, That about does it for my review of Mirror Image. Um, Before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 168 of The Obsessive Viewer. It's a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at ObsessiveViewer.com. You know, that's not the sole thing, I think, that made those movies. And I think what we've learned is that what made those movies great uh, was Chris Nolan. Right and and dark or light. I mean, you know, I feel if Adam West was it was Batman in a Chris (laughs) Nolan movie, the movies would be good because the movies were good, right? It's not like the tone of a movie doesn't make or break. Like if you say we're gonna go, we're gonna make an angry Batman, it does not a good Batman movie make. The mistake they made was giving the reins to Zack Snyder and saying do what you're gonna do, Mm -hmm. and like you said, he. Um, he tried to make it dark And I do think that they they uh, the, the influence of Chris Nolan's Darker vision was there uh, But I think they missed the mark Of what was important The Dark Knight is a good movie Because it's a good, well-made film Not because it's darker mm-hmm. True Of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at ObsessiveViewer.com. And you can find that episode in particular that you just heard a clip from at ObsessiveViewer.com slash OV168. Also, if you're in the Indianapolis area, uh, we're hosting an event in October called Shocktober in Irvington. Uh, more information about that is at and Irvington.com. We're basically hosting uh, screenings of short horror films from local filmmakers of the Indiana or Indianapolis area. And we're going to uh, have giveaways, raffles, all that stuff, all to benefit the Irvington Historical Society. It's our third year doing it. Again, more information as well as links to the Facebook event page and where you can buy your tickets online right now is at shocktoberandirvington.com. Okay, so my bonus review for this week is an episode of Journey to the Unknown called Matakitas is Coming. And so so Journey to the Unknown, it's it's a series that I referenced in my review of The Last Flight um, a couple weeks ago in episode thirteen of the podcast, which you can find at an, an, I'm sorry, which you can find at anthologypod.com slash zero one three. So Journey to the Unknown was a British anthology television series that was produced by Hammer Film uh, Productions and 20th Century Fox Television. It aired from September 26, 1968 to January 30, 1969. Um, It's a little confusing about when it, like where it aired, because uh, basically each episode aired on ABC in the U.S., and... I guess prior to that, or before or after that, it aired on um, ITV in the UK. I'm not sure about you know stations or anything in the in the UK. So I, I, from what I saw, it's uh, ITV. So anyway, um, each episode featured one American guest star in the lead role, and in America, eight episodes from the series were rebroadcast as four made-for-TV movies that. Um, would pair two of the episodes together. So, um, math, um, <laughs> four made for TV movies encompassing eight episodes from the series. Each, uh, each made for TV movie had two episodes together and included new footage that was, uh, basically to break up the segments hosted by actors, um, introducing them. So anyway, the episode of journey to the unknown that I'm reviewing tonight is uh, Matakius is coming. It originally aired on November twenty eighth, nineteen sixty eight, on ABC, and I was able to find this on YouTube. Someone posted it's uh, what appears to be fifteen of the seventeen episodes of Journey to the Unknown are all on um, YouTube. Unfortunately, the the episode numbers don't correspond to. I, the IMDb episode numbers, which also don't correspond to the Wikipedia episode numbers. So it's kind of confusing. Like this episode on, on YouTube is episode six. On IMDb, this episode is episode three. And on Wikipedia, this is episode eight. So I'm going off of Wikipedia and it's season one, episode eight. So I guess I could look at the air dates too. Um, figure it out, but it's too late for that. Anyway, um, here's a brief plot summary for Matt is Coming. A woman doing research on a dead murderer finds herself alone and trapped in the library where 41 years earlier he killed the librarian. So I chose this as a bonus review because Vera Miles was the lead actress in it, and I I gotta say, I really like her in this role. I really liked it. Um, the character is this hardworking journalist who works the crime beat, so she's kind of, she's, she's got this, uh, she's got this professional energy to her that's like she's not, she's, comes across as kind of fearless. Um, she's an expert in her field and she's, the confidence that she has really makes you root for her. Um, there's a scene, I think it's the opening scene actually. Um, she re- receives this, uh, confession letter about a murder that she wrote about, um, recently for the, I think she works for a magazine. Um, so she receives this confession letter and she's talking to, um, I think it's a coworker or it might be her fiance. I can't remember, but she talks about it to him and, he's like, well, what are you going to do? That's, that's, that's terrifying. What are you going to do? And she just completely dismisses it. She's like, oh yeah, this is no big deal. It's fine. So you see that she's, she's been doing this for a while and the way that she dismisses it so nonchalantly just really made me, um, intrigued about the character and really engrossed in, in her journey early on. And so after following that and some other expository stuff, um, the majority of the episode actually takes place in a library. And these episodes are hour long. It's an hour long show. So the majority is this takes place in this library and the atmosphere is really great and the space is wonderful. It's it's taking place overnight so it's dark and it's like the lighting is really dim and the, the library is a big location, so there's a lot of room for variety of sets and uh, different areas for um, the character to explore and to keep the story moving. So I really appreciated that about it. And even though it's a big location, the way that the character becomes trapped in the library, she's kind of locked out by after staying in after hours. Um, the way that it's set up and the way that it goes the way that it develops makes it feel so claustrophobic despite the library size. And I really dug that about the episode. Um, so once the once the actual plot gets going, um, the build up of the tension is pretty good, though I will say that i had a, I struggled a little bit getting into it um, or the episode seemed to struggle a little bit get uh, to get going um with the plot because at the time I didn't realize that the majority of the episode took place in the library. So I kind of thought her being trapped inside was going to be a brief scene that was going to propel the story further for, you know, the next day in the, in the, um, story. But so, so that, that incorrect assumption made the episode kind of drag for me just a little bit there. However, there is a really nice twist that I honestly didn't see coming that really brought me back into the story. And I won't give it away here cause I want, I want to keep these bonus reviews spoiler free. But after she makes some phone calls, after she's, she's locked in, she comes to this realization that made for just a really solid twist and made it really solid twist that would have fit well in twilight zone. Um, so so I really appreciated that. And from there, the episode becomes about her protecting this librarian that's trapped inside with her. And the threat that they're facing is steeped in this creepy super, uh, pseudo-supernatural entity that has ties to Satan worship, which I thought gave it some really interesting color and made me really intrigued to see what happened. And once the episode reaches its ending, I was left really satisfied with it. I, um, I thought that it was a really well constructed, um, narrative and, uh, suspense, suspenseful thing, um, suspenseful story. And I I really liked it. I recommend checking it out. Like I said, it's on YouTube. I'll have the links in the show notes and also the links will be at anthologypod.com slash zero one six. Um, it's really cool. I'm looking forward to checking out more episodes of Journey to the Unknown now that I know that it's available on YouTube. Um and obviously it's obviously the video quality isn't that great, but um but it it got the job done. Um it, it's I applaud whoever uploaded them to YouTube. Um so I recommend checking it out. It's pretty good. It's uh Matikidis is coming on uh, YouTube. It's episode six of journey to the unknown. So I recommend checking it out. And I still wish that I could have watched a uh, panic button, the playhouse 90 with the VR miles written by Rod Serling, but maybe eventually I'll be able to get those, track those down. Maybe they'll come up or something. Um, the playhouse 90 episodes. So anyway, that does it for this week's episode of anthology. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I, I checked the, download stats for every episode and I'm really grateful to have everyone listening um, that does listen and I appreciate you guys listening so much and I encourage you to go to the Facebook page and like it at facebook.com slash anthology pod because I'm hoping to get more post more things to that page because having the Twitter handle at obsessive viewer that's kind of both for obsessive viewer and for Um, anthology, anthology pod on Facebook is kind of the central place for anthology stuff and that we can maybe get some good, um, conversations going there. I'll post links to, um, upcoming bonus reviews so you can check it out on, uh, like if it's on YouTube or Google Play or whatever, you can figure out a, figure it out ahead of time. So having said that, uh, next week is, a pretty, pretty exciting one. Um, so next week, I'm going to be reviewing episode 22 of the Twilight Zones first season. Um, the monsters are due on Maple Street and I am so excited. At this point, I've already watched it. Um, cause I like to keep, like to stay a few episodes ahead and, and keep a couple, keep a few episodes in production at all times, basically for, for this podcast. So I've seen it. Cannot wait to talk to you guys about it because. Oh man. It's, it's so you guys know it's, it's so good. Um, (laughs) I'm really excited about it. I can't wait to talk about it. And, um, yeah. Uh, so that's next week, episode 22 of twilight zone. It's the monsters are due on maple street. That's episode 17 of anthology. And for the bonus review for that, I'm actually going to review the 2002 remake from the 2002 Twilight Zone revival with uh, Forrest Whitaker I think hosted it Um, they remade The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street so for the first time ever I'm going to review an episode of The Twilight Zone and its remake from um, one of its one of the show's revivals and The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street from 2002's show is available on YouTube so I'll have a link to that in the show notes here so you guys can do your homework as well. So having said all that, thank you again for listening, and uh, I'll I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer.com. Like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends, Mike and tiny. Also check out the obsessive viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com com, where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the obsessive viewer subreddit at r slash obsessive viewer and check out obsessive dot our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, Check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.